Well, good morning, friends. God bless you and happy Resurrection Day. Valerie and I want you to know that we love you and we believe that our lives are even more enriched because of your friendships and we value those friendships. We send our richest blessings to you and our prayer for you today is that you and your family will celebrate this risen Savior we call Jesus as we take time to reflect upon his faithfulness and his goodness to us. May Resurrection Sunday be filled with treasures from the storehouse of our Father. Well, today I actually celebrate my 25th Easter as a believer. It's the first Easter that I will actually spend the entire day at home. I may not even walk down my front steps today. And although we may be physically separated from one another, we are certainly unified with one another in spirit by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In preparation for this message, I couldn't help but think that the Father also knew what the heartache of separation felt like. Through the first Adam's disobedience, all humanity that followed would be infected with the virus known as sin. And through that one act of disobedience, Adam sequestered himself from the Father and went into hiding, but his father came looking for him. Because that's what good daddies do. They go looking for lost children. The father was not out to punish Adam. He came to put his arms around a very scared and hurting son. Our vehicles are equipped with a spare tire so that when one of our tires goes flat, that we can still get to our destination. Friends, that's what the Father had in mind. You see, when Adam's heart went flat the day that he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Father had already made provision for the plan of redemption through the last Adam's breath, that is, his son Jesus, so that he could see to it that you and me and us could make it to our destination. Jesus' journey to lead us back to his father began in a cradle with a newborn cry. I don't know what that sounded like. It probably sounded like any other baby. But there's something that's so beautiful about a newborn cry. There's something so innocent about it. You hear life speaking to you. That's where Jesus' journey began. It was in a cradle with a newborn cry. And it ended at a cross with another cry. The cry of it is finished. As hurtful and as powerful as the cross was, it is not the crescendo of Jesus' life. I still love the cross, and through the cross I see the epic demonstration of all of heaven's love for me. But the cross, without the resurrection of Jesus, would have had no power to save us. We would have been left behind as strangers and aliens in the world on the side of the road without a spare, without hope, and without God. The resurrection of Christ was the summit of his journey. Jesus planted his flag of righteousness into the heart of crucified man and declared, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? 
Friends, it is through faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we pass from death to life, and we are given the privilege to become sons of God, even unto them which believe on his name. If you remove any one of these three, death, burial, and resurrection, you do not have a plan of salvation. By trusting in Jesus' finished work, we become one with the man that was there from the beginning of time, the one that was in the garden when Adam's heart went flat. Friends, by trusting in Jesus, we become one with the man that possesses the breath of life to breathe once again into the valve stem of humanity's flattened heart so that we can become a new creation in Christ. The entire Bible is about Jesus and everything he did, number one, to restore our relationship with the Father, but also to restore the way we see the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been there from the beginning. The plan of redemption and reconciliation has been there from the beginning. Nothing took the Father by surprise. Listen, the Father didn't have to turn an automobile plant into a respirator factory, no. He had already made provision for humanity's flattened heart. We see that truth in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The Apostle Peter wrote these words, he said, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God chose him as your ransom. I love that. Long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Those scriptures are pointing back to when the Israelites left Egypt. When they left, they took with them Egypt's silver and gold, but it wasn't with perishable things that they were redeemed from the empty way of life as a slave. It was because of covenant. They were Abraham's descendants, and they possessed the same covenant, and they possessed the same rights, and the same promises that Abraham possessed in the covenant. We see that truth in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. The Bible says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And it happened exactly the way God said it would happen. The Father's gift of righteousness and His gift of grace has been there from the beginning. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's love for us never diminishes, and it has been there from the beginning of time. Daddy's pardon out of guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation has been there from the beginning. Daddy's pardon out of performance and slavery and bondage and oppression has been there from the beginning. Again, First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, God chose him as your ransom. Look at these words, long before the world began. In other words, it was not an afterthought. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Did you catch that? 
God chose Jesus as our ransom long before the world began, before humanity took its first breath and before humanity got the breath knocked out of it from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But now in these last days, Jesus has been revealed for our sake. With all of these truths in mind, I want to minister for a few minutes to the message this morning I'm calling the rock that cried. In the book of Exodus, chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, we find the account of the ten plagues. I'm talking about the plagues that God poured out on Pharaoh and all of Egypt because of Pharaoh's unyielding heart to let God's people go. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. Does that mean that the Israelites were not affected by the ten plagues because they were perfect in thought, word, and deed? It's a good question because it's a question we have to encounter in real life. The answer to that question is no. They were not perfect in thought, word, and deed, and that is not why they were spared from the plagues. Was it because the Israelites always let go of everything that God told them to let go of? No. They didn't know the voice of God. They had not heard His voice for hundreds of years. They would get their Passover and Exodus instructions through Moses, God's spokesman. Friends, the Israelites were not affected by the ten plagues that were sent by God because they were under covenant. Now, it's important for us to understand this truth. You see, as believers, we don't inhibit, we don't thwart the punishment and wrath of the Father through our perfect performance, or even because we are quick to let go of everything that is sinful or hurtful to us. We are exempt from the judgment and the wrath of God because we are in covenant with Him through Jesus Christ, I'm talking about the rock that cried, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus shed his blood to give us an eternal pardon from judgment and wrath. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The first of the ten plagues that was poured out on all of Egypt was the plague of blood. It was the plague whereby God turned the Nile River and every reservoir that contained water into blood. Every stream, every canal, every pond, every bucket, and the Bible even says, and every stone jar that contained water was changed to blood. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. The scriptures tell us that the Egyptians could not drink the water, but the Israelites had drinking water. Why? Because they were under covenant with God. God demonstrated his power to change the constitution of the Nile's water into blood in an instant. Jesus would give us a glimpse into the same power while at a wedding ceremony in Cana when he performed his first miracle by changing water into wine. And what did Jesus have the servants fill? His stone water pots. What was the comment by the master of the banquet after he had tasted the wine? He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But he said, but you, you are different. You have saved the best till now. Friends, so it is with covenants. Jesus has saved the best till now. He is not serving us Boone's Farm wine. He is not serving us cheap wine or cheap grace. Cana represents the place where miracles begin, the place of the first miracle of many, a place of celebration and joy, a place of the first unyielding of Christ's glory. Cana speaks of salvation. Cana speaks of new beginnings. And Cana speaks of a better covenant 
the best wine that has been saved till now. The last of the ten plagues that came to Egypt was the plague that brought death upon the firstborn son and every Egyptian family, and death also to the firstborn of all the cattle. So the first plague was the plague of blood, and the last plague was the plague of death to the firstborn son. Does this sound a little familiar? You see, looking back from this side of the cross, we see a conspicuous, a visible type and shadow, if you will, of our redemption and deliverance from Egypt and our oppressors. Not from the blood that flowed from the Nile, oh no, but from the blood that flowed from God's firstborn son, Jesus Christ. Throughout each of the ten plagues, we see a covenant-keeping God dealing differently with those from the land of Goshen, the very region where his people lived. God declared that when he would send the plagues, that he would make a distinction between his people and the Egyptians so that all could see that he was with them, and he did that perfectly. I believe in my heart that a distinction is being made even now as to how we are going to respond to this plague, this epidemic that we are facing. We have to trust that on the other side of this virus, we will walk away favorably disposed and plundering the very thing that oppressed us and came to rob us of rest. We must believe that the time has come to turn water into the best of wines and then take this wine of the new covenant and serve it to wedding guests, friends. God institutes what is called the Lord's Passover to commence on the very eve that the last of the ten plagues is being poured out. I'm talking about the plague of death that came to the Egyptians' firstborn males. In chapter 13 of Exodus, we read about the Passover. We are confronted with the instructions that the Israelites were given regarding the preparation of the Passover meal. They were directed by Moses to apply the blood from the lamb that they sacrificed to the sides and the top of the door frames of the house where they ate the lambs so that no destructive plague would touch them when God struck Egypt. Friends, in doing so, not a single life was lost among the Israelites. This is a type and shadow that shows us the power of the blood to maintain our lives. It had nothing to do with the Israelites' behavior inside the home. They may have been inside the home quarreling with their wives at night. Who knows? Friends, it had everything to do with the blood of the Lamb. Only the lives of the firstborn in Egypt were taken from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock. The word declares that there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Now you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound like a loving God. Friend, the vehicle that is chauffeuring those thoughts around in your head has a flat tire. You see, you have overlooked the footprints in the sand, and you have underestimated the power and the responsibility of covenant. I'm talking about the covenant that declares everything is mine in you. I'm talking about the covenant that upholds the truth that when your enemies attack you, they attack me, and I will help you fight. I'm talking about the covenant that began with a man named Abraham and then was passed along through Abraham's descendants through the generations that followed him, the very generation of people that ended up as slaves in Egypt under the Pharaoh. Israelite slaves that were ignorant to the covenant of promise, but nevertheless, 
they were included in the covenant that God made with Abraham. We see that truth in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. I like that one. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, beautiful. I will make nations out of you. Awesome. The kings will come to you. Terrific. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. Look at these words. And your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Isn't that wonderful, folks? When the Israelites left Egypt in the mass exodus, the scriptures declare that they left with articles of silver and gold because the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the Israelites. That means the Egyptians were happy to give them parting gifts just to get rid of them, just to bring relief. Now you would think this would be a faith builder to the Israelites. I mean, imagine a man getting released from a life sentence in prison and then the warden writing him a check for $1 million on his way out. That's a faith builder. If that didn't do it, then what about the drowning of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea? Wouldn't that have been a faith builder? What about when God rained down manna and quail from heaven? Wouldn't that have been a faith builder? What about the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud by night? Shade by day, warmth by night. Wouldn't that have been a faith builder? Friends, included in the Abrahamic covenant was the promises that God was going to make Abraham and his descendants very fruitful and that he would prosper them in the land of Canaan. So let me get this straight. The Israelites have been delivered from slavery. Yes. They have plundered the Egyptians of gold and silver. Yes. They are on their way to a land that flows with milk and honey. Yes. They are provided for with every step of the journey. Yes. Then what happened? Why are they suddenly complaining? I'll tell you what happened. Listen to me carefully. Living a lifetime of oppression. In other words, getting used to a pattern of oppression and slavery had taken its toll on the way they saw God. Friends, that can still happen today. When people fall under extended periods of time of oppression and difficulties and challenges, sometimes it has a way of affecting the way they see God. Having to have a real relationship with God kind of got in the way for the Israelites. In fact, when the Israelites saw Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, you know what they did? They trembled with fear. And they stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Friends, they have a wrong image of God in their head. They have a flat tire God in their head. 
Friends, when your sole mentality is to work like a dog to please your taskmaster and then get up day after day and do it all over again, you won't know how to identify with grace, especially when it's served to you on a silver article or a golden platter. Do you see how much grace God is lavishing on the Israelites? I mean, it was as though they had won the lottery. One day, oppression. One day, under taskmasters. The next day, liberties. The next day, full of riches. The next day, free from the taskmasters. Their default was a cheap Boone's Farm wine when Jesus is trying to serve the best wine. They wanted old covenant rules when Jesus shed his blood to bring us new covenant relationship, and some people today still do. Their default was to keep driving on a flat tire with a pitiful hope that they'll reach their destination. That's why the church is having such a hard time with the message of unconditional grace. It's because all their lives they have been trained to listen for orders and to work their fingers to the bone. Friends, we need to look to the rock that cried, It is finished! As the Israelites camped at Rephidim, there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. And here's what he said, Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Friends, the rock that Moses struck was a type and shadow of Jesus Christ being smitten. Now in their defense, there was no way for the Israelites or even Moses to know that that rock represented Christ. Remember the words from the apostle Peter when he said, God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now only in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. The apostle Paul echoed those words and confirmed that that rock back in the wilderness was Christ. He did that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-4, through 4, when he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock, look at these words, that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Here's the Apostle Paul pointing all the way back to their encounter in the wilderness when Moses struck the rock and he said that rock was Christ. About a year later, the Israelites complained again because they had no water. We see that truth in Numbers chapter 20 verses 7 through 12. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. He said, speak to that rock. Not strike the rock, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. What was Moses to do? Speak to the rock. 
You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. <laughs> Come on, Moses. He said, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and the livestock drank. Friends, I want to tell you something. Water came out of that rock in spite of Moses' disobedience. Why? Because God is good. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. The rock in the desert was a type and shadow of Christ. The water was a symbol of life and sustenance. God told Moses the first time to strike the rock, and in doing so, living water poured forth. Now we understand Jesus' cry from the Feast of Tabernacles when he said in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believeth on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. In the striking of the rock, we see the type and shadow of our Christ being stricken and smitten. On this occasion, when the Israelites cried out for water, God told Moses to speak to the rock. But what did Moses do? He struck the rock twice with his rod. Friends, in Moses' disobedience, he had short-circuited his privilege to lead the Israelites into the promised land, Joshua would ultimately be the one to take them in. So let me ask the question that begins to develop in our minds. Do we forfeit our privilege to enter into our promised land because of disobedience? The answer is no. How is that, you ask? Because Moses was under the old covenant. A conditional covenant. We are under the new covenant, a covenant without conditions, limitations, and exclusions. There is no question that the rock in the wilderness was a picture of Christ. The greater picture that we see when we contrast these two encounters with the rock is that Christ need only be smitten and stricken once, not twice. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, the Bible says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He does not have to be stricken, smitten, or sacrificed again. The Bible says by one sacrifice he has made perfect. How? By us speaking to him, letting him speak to us. We have been made holy. Toward the end of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus said these words from the cross. He said, I am 
thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head, and with a final cry, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus' last breath was not wasted, my friend. His last breath was breathed back into our deflated hearts. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Our Father is acquainted with sorrow and the heartache of separation. And because of His great love, He made provision to redeem us through His own Son, Jesus, by choosing Him as our ransom long before the world began. Like Adam, we all had deflated hearts. And it would take the exhaled breath of Jesus on the cross to breathe back into us the breath of life. But the cross would have had no power without the resurrection. Today we commemorate, we celebrate a risen Savior. We celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate a Savior that never needs to be smitten again because through His once-for-all sacrifice, He has already made perfect forever those who are made holy. Friends, I'm talking about the rock that cried, It is finished. Jesus planted His flag of righteousness and grace into the heart of crucified man, and then He declared the words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I want to ask you the same question he asked Martha. Do you believe this? By the Spirit, the Father has led us out of captivity and bondage. He has delivered us from the ones that held us in Egypt. He has pardoned us from guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation. Oh, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Friends, hear the words of the Father. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. We have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. We are served the finest of wines by the Spirit. I'm talking about the new covenant. Jesus is the place where miracles begin. Jesus is a place of celebration and joy. Jesus speaks of salvation. Jesus speaks of new beginnings. And Jesus speaks of a better covenant. The covenant of grace. The best wine that has been saved till now. How did this happen? It happened through Jesus. The rock that cried, I found them, Daddy. Daddy, I breathed into them the breath of life. Daddy, they will make it to their destination, for I will be with them as they journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Father, I want to thank you for the resurrection message. It's a message that led us out of the wilderness. It's a message that led us out of sin and bondage and captivity. 
It's a message that drowned the enemies that pursued us. It's a message that reveals the way you have provided for us along this journey. And Father, we thank you that we have hope because of it being a finished work, that you will continue to provide for us. I want to thank you, Father, that it's true that rivers of living water do flow, not only out of Jesus' belly, but they flow out of our belly as well. I want to thank you, Father, that there is no separation between us and you now. Why? Because Jesus was chose to be a ransom and to redeem us before the world began. Jesus was chose to be a ransom for us long before the world began. Father, I want to thank you that you have the power over our deflated hearts and that Jesus' once-for-all breath, when it was breathed into our hearts, he took a step back and he said, Father, that heart will never go flat again. Father, I thank you. I thank you that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. I thank you that we have been served the finest of wines by the Spirit. I thank you, Father, that the miracle that first took place in a water pot was just a picture of a miracle that took place inside of us. We are that water pot. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty grave. But most of all, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the rock that cried. In Jesus' name, amen.